Good morning, everybody. So if you do not have a sermon outline, Charles will make his way around. If you can raise your hand, he'll, he'll get you one. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark's Gospel, still in chapter 1. So first thing I want you to think about this morning is authority. He's going to talk about the authority of Jesus Christ, but to understand Jesus' authority, we have to understand our relationship with authority. Because let's be honest, as people, we naturally have a problem with authority. I mean, from a young age, we want to challenge any limitations that are set upon us. We challenge our parents. We challenge the rules. We want to see how far we can push the limits and how in control we really are. And this is a tension because it threatens our autonomy. The word autonomy means a law unto ourselves. It threatens our desire to be the final authority. And this is what makes Jesus so threatening. Because if he has the authority that Mark says he does, and that the gospel writer says he does, and the authority that he says he does, that means that you're not in control. That means that his power reigns over you. And that is threatening. And likewise, it makes the gospel threatening. Because it presupposes that the good news we hear in God's word holds an authority over you. And that the good news in God's Word says that Jesus reigns. He is Lord. He has authority. He will judge. And if your faith is not in Him, you have no hope without His righteousness. And that is very threatening. Because we want to stand on our own two feet. We want to stand on our own goodness We want to buck against every authority put against us. Some of us more overtly than others. We have to realize how we're designed as well. We're designed to be under authority. So even if we rebel against the authorities placed over us, we will place our own authorities in our lives. This is what was happening in Jesus' day. They wouldn't submit themselves to the Word of God. They didn't even know God, the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Sadducees. But they made themselves an authority unto themselves and placed an authority over the people. And we see that these days. In our world today, there is a fight against every established authority. Whether it's from parents in the family to government at the highest levels. We don't want anyone else telling us that to do something. And we're going to deal with that later. But most of all, The Word of God, the authority of God's Word is threatening in our day and time. Because it is unequivocal, it is unwavering, it is clear, it is absolute, and we don't like that. And the gloves are off, and the rage is palatable. And it's only getting more and more intense. And what I'm going to posit this morning, what we will is, especially going through Mark's Gospels, when you are face-to-face with the Jesus of the Scriptures, you cannot be indifferent. Ah, I don't really know how I feel about him. You either love him or you hate him. There is no middle option. And so, when we look at this passage this morning, Mark's purpose is to show Jesus' authority in every aspect of his ministry and what that means for those he encounters. Because what Jesus does and how he does it proves who he is. That he is 
Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Let's read in Mark, picking up in chapter 1, verse 21. Now, as I read and as we walk through, I want you to pay attention to all the authoritative language here and all the ways and the details that Mark uses to show Jesus' authority. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do to us? Do with us, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they, talk, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you have revealed yourself in words on a page. Through pen and ink, you have given us a glimpse into the divine, into the eternal. Your revelation has much to teach us, should instruct us and challenge us and convict us and guide us. Lord, I pray that this morning your authority over all things is evident. That we would rejoice that you are a mighty God. There is no power that can stand against you. There is no doctrine that can stand against you. There is no will of man that can stand against you. And we should rejoice. Because if we are in you, that is also our protection, our salvation, our hope. We praise you, Father, Son, Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. Thank you for your word that is living and active, and that it would convict us and work in us this morning, that we may do what is pleasing to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so broad strokes here. This is one day in the life of Jesus. Sun up, he goes to the synagogue. Sun down, people are coming from all around to be healed. So we're dealing with one day, but two connected accounts. And We're going to kind of see a rhythm of what goes on here. And so 
what I'm going to do, I'm going to explain what's going on in the text, and we're going to spend our time in application in verse 34, because it's kind of a good summary of what's going on here. So we're going to learn about Jesus' authority and effects and the effects that it has on those who he meets. And so now we're going to look at this first section in the synagogue, verses 21 through 28. And what I want you to notice is there's a lot of strong language here. The Jews are very expressive people, but uh, there's a lot of strong imagery in the language. There is crying out, there is rebuking, there is astonishment. This is not meant to be taken as a casual exchange. And in this section, we're going to see both Jesus' words and his deeds have power. Both his teaching and his action shows his authority. And so for you to understand that, because this is a little out of context for us, uh, there are some parallels with the Jewish synagogue and the Sunday Sabbath uh, worship, but it is quite different as well. So first, I want to talk about Capernaum, where they are. This is Jesus' ministry home base. And this is a thriving city with uh, a, a rich Jewish population, but also a lot of Roman money that comes in. Matthew, the tax collector, was probably uh, working in the customs office, taking taxes from all of these different merchants who were coming in and out of the area. And the Jews there uh, were very prosperous, and you had a lot of different cultures coming into the area. Uh, we, we showed the Sea of Galilee last week, and I think it's kind of helpful to show where Capernaum is. And it's not far from Nazareth, and it'll be up on the screen. Capernaum, the map of Capernaum. Sea of Galilee, there you go. Um, so, Capernaum's kind of there at, at the top. And last week we talked about Jesus met his disciples and went a little bit further and met two more disciples. So there are all of these ports, these Roman ports around the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and Capernaum is, is one of them. And so after Jesus gets kicked out of Nazareth, we'll get there in a minute, he kind of makes his home base at Capernaum. And... Um, why Jesus is, is in Capernaum is because the first time he teaches in the synagogue, Luke tells us this in chapter 4, he teaches, he opens the scrolls of Isaiah. They are filled with wrath. They want to kill him, and they try to, try to throw him off a cliff. Yeah, so that's how they respond to Jesus' teaching. It's the only time we get a glimpse of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. So he moves a few towns over into Capernaum, and that's where we find him. But what does this synagogue teaching look like? There's a few images on the screen. The, the first one's going to be kind of a, a modern recreation of the synagogue in Capernaum. And so, uh, this, is, so uh, this is the model of the one that Jesus would have taught in, and there are still remains of that today. There is a synagogue in Capernaum, which we'll see next, that is constructed on top of it. But basically what would happen, go back to the first one if you would, that's the new one. Uh, so this is kind of what they, where Jesus would have taught. He would have taught in the, this, this colonnade in the middle, and they would have, would have all sat on benches in, in the back. And, and um, they didn't have a regular pastor like, like we would. There would be a scribe who was responsible for keeping the law and keeping the order and putting a, and putting a worship service together. But respected laymen or traveling rabbis would, would, would come, and they would read Scripture, and they would expound on it. So this was a regular thing that was done every week. Um, and this was central to the life of the Jewish people. Because by Jewish law, you could not move around on the Sabbath. And so there was a limited distance you could actually travel on the Sabbath. So there would, any place there was at least 10 Jewish men, there would be a synagogue. Whether it was in a house or whether it was built 
uh, in a larger scale. This one is so nice and detailed as it is because Luke tells us in chapter 7 that a centurion who loved the Jewish people built this. This is built with Roman money for Jews. And Jesus being there would have been a good Jewish man and would have showed up. And, and because his wisdom was recognized, he would have been asked to read a scripture. And when he would do this, there would be a response. And again, we only see that in Luke 4, but this is the regular rhythm of the Jewish life. And then throughout the week, they would, they would gather and they would ask questions and they would pray. But Sunday was the, the time when the men of the community would come together and they would read and they would question and they would, and they would reason But Jesus' teaching is a little bit different. Picking up in verse 22. When he goes into Capernaum and Sabbath, he teaches, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Let's talk about his his teaching for a moment. And they were amazed because it wasn't like what they were used to hearing. Now, other than Luke 4, we don't really know what Jesus' teaching was. We don't know how he explained the scriptures. I wish I knew. I wish I could be transported to hear Jesus explain Jesus from Isaiah or Jesus explain Jesus from Ecclesiastes. But we don't, we don't have that. We don't know exactly what the content of his teaching was, but Mark's point here is to show how his teaching came across. That Jesus is an authority. He's not like those other teachers. He is the authority. And we know that His superiority and his authority is evident in every area. He stood out from the the other teachers. So we don't know exactly what he taught, but we do know from his teaching and his parables how he taught. What type of teacher was Jesus? Why was this so astonishing for them? One, he he spoke in plain language. The scribes did not do that. He used the language of the people. He used the examples of everyday life. He He was caring He was patient. His his wisdom was unfathomable, the way that he would get right to the heart of every issue. And he would not just deal with trivial things like the rabbis would, but matters of life and death, and he would cut them to the heart. He would leave them examining themselves and feeling convicted or feeling frustrated and hateful. His was a teaching you could not deny and you could not be indifferent about. His doctrine, it was perfect, and it was piercing. He was theologically accurate. He was also precise and would perform heart surgery every time he spoke, getting right down to what was at the very core of his hearers. And how they responded, they were astonished. This word in the Greek means struck. It means out of their senses. They don't even know what to do right now. They're not trusting, they can't even trust their eyes and their ears because this is so amazing. They're stopped in their tracks because he taught them as one with authority, not as the scribes. So what type of teaching were they used to? What type of teachers were the scribes? They were like your least favorite college professor. They were the guys who would give long lectures quoting lots of rabbis you didn't know, talking about a lot of trivial things you didn't care about, and they were boring. And they were, and, and they, and they were dull, and they didn't, they didn't care about people. But because of their, their status, and the, the scribes follow in the tradition of Ezra, but they had become kind of figureheads for the local synagogue. 
So much so that when they walked in a room, everyone would have to stand. They were highly honored and revered, and no one dare question them. And they were known for these long, dull sermons with lots of boring details, like many preachers we hear today, unfortunately. When someone comes like Jesus and looks them in the eye and speaks about what they know in their mind and they know in their heart and, and challenges the scriptures that makes them the hero of the story, makes them the righteous ones, they are convicted and they are astonished. But this tension does not go away. It actually escalates throughout the Gospel of Mark. And we will talk about this more in this sermon, but also in the Gospel itself. Because in Mark, Jesus is always at odds with the synagogue and its leaders. And even so, to the final book we see in in Scriptures, the synagogue does not have a good reputation among the people of God. In Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation, he calls Jews who are Jews, but not really a synagogue of Satan. This is where people claiming to be the people of God, but really haters of God, gather. And I think that is why this man with the unclean spirit felt welcome here. Let's move on. And immediately, there was a man with an unclean spirit. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Notice that this man with the unclean spirit freely walks about the synagogue. He's fine. Everything's good for him until Jesus shows up. This language of of unclean is ceremonial unclean, impure, essentially ungodly. And this man with the unclean spirit is no longer in charge of his own body. So the first thing we we saw is that Jesus' authority in teaching, in his doctrine, is greater than the doctrines of the pharisaical teachers, the scribes, the wise men of that age. He is better than the best. He blows them away. It's not even close. So he has doctrinal authority, but he also has spiritual authority because this man is no longer, had no longer has authority over his own body. This unclean spirit has taken over him. And Jesus is going to show exactly what this demonic authority is, is up against. And there's, there's a, a kingdom clash that goes on. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan coming face to face. And this demon who is in this man is under no illusion. And this is how he responds in verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What have you to do with us? Kind of weird language. But essentially, it's like, we are nothing. Why bother us? What have you to do with us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Why would you care about us? We're just inhabiting some random guy in some random providence in in the Roman Empire. Why would you care about us? What have you to do with us? If you come to destroy us, they know who he is. The whole demonic world is on notice, and they are terrified. If you come to destroy us, I know who you are. This is something I want to spend some time on in application at the end of the sermon, but I want you to think about. The spirit realm is under no delusion of who Jesus is. James, in his second chapter, verse 19, 
He says, you believe that God is one. Good for you. So do the demons. And they shudder. Having right doctrine does not make you right with God. The demons are more solid in their theology than every one of us. They know God very well. He knows exactly who He is. You are the Holy One of God. This is a unique term. This is one for someone who is set apart, but also mighty. There's only one other person in the entire Bible who is known as the Holy One of God. This is a great trivia question. If anyone of you know this, I will be really impressed. Samson. It's the only other person in Scripture called the Holy One of God. What do we know about Samson? Samson is an ordinary man till the Spirit of God comes upon him. And then he is mighty. And anyone he gets in, who gets in his way, he destroys. This is why we read Isaiah 42 earlier. Our God is a mighty man against his foes. Jesus comes in the spirit of, of Samson, in the spirit of God. And anyone who confronts him does not stand a chance. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The Spirit knows that His days are numbered when facing Jesus Christ. And Jesus rebukes Him. Strictly charges Him. Orders Him. Why does He rebuke Him? More later. But what is His rebuke? Be silent. Literally, muzzle yourself. Shut up. Stop speaking. My authority applies to your very words. Shut up and come out of her. You stop speaking when I tell you to. You move when I tell you to. You stop moving when I tell you to. His authority is over the very words and the actions of the demons. There is nothing outside of his control. He commands them like he commands the waters. Like he commanded creation to come into being. Jesus even commands what the demons say and do. How small do we sell him? How short do we sell him? Do we forget that his authority applies to the very actions of his enemies? And it always accomplishes its purpose. And for the rebellious, it's not pretty. He has no choice but to obey. But how does that obedience look? And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Imagine the scene here. You're in a synagogue. All of these self-righteous Jewish men who think that they are the, the elect of God simply because of the blood that's in their veins. And that their righteousness is and that they are sons of Abraham and they are prim and proper and they've got it all figured out until this guy who's in their midst that they completely missed calls out Jesus for who he is and then gets called out and then a spirit gets called out of this man and convulses and screams. All these dignified Jewish men are losing their minds right now. And that is how they respond. The unclean spirit convulsing and crying out with a loud voice come out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus showed them from the scriptures, I have authority. Jesus showed them from his actions, I have authority. It was undeniable to them. Imagine being in that room. 
And look at how, look at what they say. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. A command is to put pressure on someone. It's, it's to call someone to a duty. You follow my orders. My authority commands the demons. And they obey. The, author- the command is, is a call to be under an authority. And obedience is placing yourself under that authority. This is what is happening. Jesus is exercising his authority and they are submitting because they have no choice. This is what is so remarkable to those in the synagogue. And naturally, and at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. How could it not? Reverberations from this ripples go out through all of the the region. You know what happened in Shabbat? You know what happened in the synagogue? This guy, this nobody, who has no pedigree, who none of us know, comes in and teaches like we've never heard and done things we've never seen. He is, he is exerting his authority in the Jewish people right before their eyes. And so Jesus is this powerful proclaimer of the word, this powerful healer. But he's also kind. He's also the shepherd who knows his sheep. Look at the intimacy. He does this marvelous deed. He doesn't send out fanfare and he doesn't pat himself on the back. What does he do? Verse 29, here's our second detail in the day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. The same guys who he called as, as fishermen. Last week we looked at what it means to follow Christ, to leave everything behind for him. That the call to repent and believe is immediate and it is complete. And he doesn't leave them. Notice this. He calls them, but he doesn't leave them by themselves. He doesn't even leave them with each other. He stays with them. He walks with them. This is the call on the disciples of Christ. He calls you from where you are. Calls you to follow him, to become fishers of men. But he walks with you. He goes home with you. Look at the intimacy of Jesus' discipleship. He just blows everybody's mind in the synagogue and he goes into Peter's house. He relaxes and, and eats with his disciples. The intimacy of discipleship. If Jesus is going to spend time in the lives of those he loves and his disciples, how should we view hospitality? How should we view the role of being in one another's homes in ministry? Jesus could have spent all day casting out demons, all day expounding the scriptures. But he intimately loved and cared for those who were, in, who were entrusted to him. This is a beautiful detail that we can get past. That's not the point of this account. Yes, Jesus was there, but there's something greater that he will do while he's there. So now Simon's mother-in-law, uh, Simon Peter, was married. We don't know much more about it than that. Uh, she lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. The next thing I think that's, that's important, if you are walking with Jesus daily and you know who he is, you, you are familiar with his teaching, if something's wrong, what's the first thing you do? Immediately, they tell, them, or they tell him about her. How simple and profound is that? 
If you know Jesus, if you know him intimately, if you walk with him, where else would you go? Peter's mom is sick, mother-in-law is sick. Let's go to Jesus right away, immediately. Their priorities are in order. Why? They had just heard his teaching. If you are in God's word, how could you go anywhere else for help or for relief? If you know the authority of the one who is in, who has called you to himself, who has called you to follow him. Amen. And do we do this? Is this something we're known for? Are we so familiar with God's word and his authority that we go to him first and foremost? Usually not. Usually we try to figure things out in our, in our own strength and try to put it together in our own minds and after failing again and again and again and again, well, maybe I should go to Jesus about this. We think too lightly about his authority. We sing about him having authority over our, our salvations, but does he have sal- authority over our circumstances? The little trivial things in, 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 in our life that we think he wouldn't be bothered with, they go directly to him. And then how he responds is beautiful. Look at Mark. And you can tell the way Mark speaks. He had heard Peter tell this story so many times. Mark being Peter's scribe and kind of rewriting or um, writing Peter's account. says this, And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. Just very matter of fact. Very simple, very straight to the point. This is not like our modern faith fake healers. There's no big show. There's no pulling on, on, on emotions. There's no entry charge to the door. He's not, he's not riling people up with, with um, music and, and strobe lights. Just simply, confidently picks her up by the hand. The fever leaves her, and she serves him. This is amazing. Jesus, it is effortless. As easy as I pick up this bottle cap, Jesus picks her up off the bed and she's healed. And she's not just kind of healed. She's completely healed. Anyone ever had a fever and gotten right up after the fever breaks and start working? No. We, we need hours or days to recover when you're, when you're that sick. It's another lesson of these modern faith fake healers. If you're really healed, you're not going to walk with a limp. If Jesus heals, he heals completely. And then one more great detail. Don't miss this. And she began to serve them. When Jesus heals you, when he reconciles you, when he makes you whole after you've been broken, you have no choice but to serve him. How could you not? If you have seen the transformative power of the authority of Jesus Christ in your life and it does not draw you to serve him, you don't understand what he's done for you or he hasn't done it. Her response is immediately to serve him. This is what happens among the small group, the intimate gathering of the disciples. And something greater happens. And I think as Peter is telling this to Mark and as Mark is retelling it to us, there's a, there's a bit of pride in Peter's part. Like at my very doorstep, look at the next verse. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. 
Why the detail of at e- that evening or sundown? Well, on the Jewish Sabbath, from sundown to sundown, you could do no work. And you could not go outside of, of your house unless you were going to synagogue, and you only had a certain amount of steps that were allotted to you. But as soon as the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over, and everybody comes now that it is permitted to do so. And they know where Jesus is because they heard about what he did in the morning. And they come and they surround Peter's house. And the disciples look out and Jesus, the whole city was gathered together at the door. And they brought all their sick and demon possessed. There's no small response to this. Everyone heard what Jesus had done and everyone came. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now here's where I want to land in verse 34. I'm going to use verse 34 as our application today. There are going to be three things in verse 34 that I want us to see. Kind of summarizes where we are and what we can pull out of Jesus' authority. Number one, what do we do with his authority? Because here... He casts out demons, and he heals the sick. And he does a lot of amazing, miraculous signs and wonders and physical things. But it is always meant to point us to the spiritual. He has power to heal, to restore, to reconcile. In the gospel itself, it is healing, it is restorative, it is reconciling. Jesus' authority does not stop with these everyday ailments. If you're in your Bible, turn back one page, literally, to the very final verses of Matthew. We all know the Great Commission. If you have not been in church for a while, we're going to read the Great Commission. The call to go out and make disciples. But what is the basis of that? The last thing that Matthew records with Jesus meeting with his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension, here's what he says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Sorry, this is Matthew 28, verse 16. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. How does Jesus calm their doubts? How does he respond? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We see a glimpse of Jesus' authority by making the lame walk and the blind see and casting out demons and teaching like no one else has. That's just His authority on earth. All heaven, all earth, everywhere, everything, all authority has been given to me. And only out of that do we go because it is under his authority that we go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age if jesus has all power and all authority to the end of the age and he is always with you how much confidence do we have to go how much confidence do we have to make disciples How much confidence do we have to teach them what he taught us? We should have complete confidence because it's not in ourselves, it's in him. Amen. But again, we sell him short. Because when we're given the opportunity to make disciples, when we're given the opportunity to teach, when we're given the opportunity to share the gospel, 
we get petrified by our own weakness. We sell his, his authority short. Well, I don't know enough yet. I haven't learned enough yet. I don't know how to answer every question, so I'm going to wait before I tell people what Jesus has done to me. If you know Jesus, it is his authority. You could mumble under your breath and trip over your feet, and he will still save them in spite of your weakness. Amen. His authority is undeniable. And it should be a source of comfort for us. Because if we believe that, if we believe that all authority in heaven and earth is in his name, is, is his, and we are in him, united to Christ in our faith, then how comforted should we be? How encouraged should we be? Do we have ever any need to be fearful? But what do we do with Jesus' authority? Do we rejoice? Are we comforted? Or do we fight against it? Because I read these words, and I believe that they're true. But I think I know better. I think I'm going to do what I want to do for now. Let's see if this Jesus stuff pans out. Many, many people say that they trust in Jesus and they know Jesus, but do what they want to do anyway. Let's make this practical. This is where we err in our human activity. How do we deal with authority? The big question right now in our world, where the people and the government are either in bed with each other or at odds with each other. How do we address this? How do we, how do we respond? And there's, there's, there's two extremes of error. But either one of them you put, is putting more on our earthly authorities than is meant to be. They're imperfect. If we place too much authority on them, we look to government as our savior. We look to government to solve our problems. We look to, for, for them to be our functional savior. We, we trust more in the, the authority of those we can see than those who are unseen, and we live by sight and not by faith. And that's detrimental because government can't save us. It can't heal us. It can't reconcile us to God. It can't save or, excuse me, or um, it can't solve anything ultimately. But government is given to us as a tool by God. And if we are too rebellious and if we are too defiant, we become disobedient. Like Romans 13 tells us that government, governing authorities are, are there for our good. But if we understand that Jesus has rule and authority over everything, even the, the authorities we don't agree with are under his authority. And that way we can wear a mask even if we think they're silly. Because by submitting to the authorities, we are submitting to Christ. But we are not submitting to them as saviors, as if they will solve all of our, our problems and bring us comfort and, and, bring us, and bring us healing and give us peace. They can't do that. But if you submit to the authorities that God has given you until they undermine his authority and go against the word of, the word of God, if you submit as long as it does not impede your relationship with the Lord, you are ultimately submitting to him. And we can do that because you know what? He is in control of all things. His sovereign hand is over the very speech and actions of the demons in our every breath, in our every step, and we can have complete confidence in him, regardless of, it, regardless of what any mayor, governor, president, king, dictator says. They cannot change anything for eternity. 
They cannot take anything out of God's hand. And so let them do what they will. We will, we, will, we will pray for them. We will submit to them as long as we are able. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Jesus comes tomorrow, none of this stuff matters. Jesus comes right now, none of this stuff matters. That is what we do with his authority. Second thing we see in verse 34. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Now, this is one of the most difficult questions in any of the Gospels. Why doesn't, let, why doesn't Jesus let them speak? Why doesn't he tell them to go tell everybody? Mark draws on this often, and we're going to draw on this often. I know some of you guys really picked your eyes up during this. Because everyone wonders, why doesn't Jesus say this? So I'm going to draw it out a little bit. Because, first of all, the reason why you ask that question, the reason why you wonder, why doesn't Jesus tell everyone? Because if we were God, we would tell everybody. If, if, we, if we were God, we would want everyone to know how powerful we are because we are so prideful. We want everyone to throw us a parade. We want everyone to lay down and bow down and worship us. Shouldn't you just proclaim who I am right now? Get it over with. Tell everybody. But Jesus is not so starved for attention as we are. He doesn't need their validation. But also, the Father's plan is much grander than we can understand. And there are things that had to happen and be worked out. They were not permitted to speak also because he knows the thoughts and intentions of his adversaries. Because he knows what was in their heart and their desire for him. That's the main reason I'll get to in just a moment. But also since we're kind of on a roll with this whole spiritual thing, let's talk about this as well. Jesus is not a magician. A lot of people followed him as a magician. What, what, what's he going to do next? Anybody ever seen Incredibles? You know the little kid who rides up to the end of the, uh, the uh, driveway? That was totally wicked and that, that whole thing. And he comes back at the end of the movie and the dad's like, what are you doing here? I don't know. Waiting to see something awesome, I guess. Like that's, I had to watch it again this morning to make sure I got the quote right. But um, that's why I watched Incredibles this morning, just letting you know. Like that 15-second YouTube clip. But that's, that's, that's the idea. Most people are just sitting there on, on their little bikes. What's he going to do next? They don't, they don't care about him. They don't want to, to, to know him. They want to see something cool. They want to see something awesome. But what they really need is to know someone awesome. Don't worry about what he does, but know who he is. That's, that's Mark's whole point. Forget the miracles and all that stuff. That is small change. What Jesus does is awesome. And this is the problem with people who play on emotions and spirituality and, and, and emotionalism. Because if your entire focus is the miraculous, the miraculous, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and it doesn't come to pass, then you're going to be disappointed. And it's going to fall short again and again and again. And these people who are, are prideful and want to bring attention to themselves, look at the miracles I can do. And if you have not listened to any of those teachers, good for you. Keep it that way. There are too many of them out there. and There's nothing like what Jesus does. But here's the main reason. The main reason he does not permit them to speak is because everything is in the Father's time. Talk about the fullness of time often in Scripture. There was a time for the world to know. Jesus came at the appropriate time. Jesus' ministry began at the appropriate time. And, it, and its duration was for the appropriate time. Everything leads up to the cross. So prior to the cross... There's still work to be done. There's still things that 
he's, he's doing. And so, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, there's an explanation for this, because they respond in quite the same way. But Matthew's commentary is very helpful. So Matthew chapter 12, I want to start reading in verse 13. So Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, again in the synagogue. And the debate is, should he heal on the Sabbath or, or not? Jesus does a good thing, heals this man with a withered hand. So this is Matthew 12, verse 13. He says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Good thing, right? Great thing. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is how his enemies respond when he heals. Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is another reason why we read Isaiah 42 this morning. This is where Mark quotes. But what's going on here? It is in his timing, not theirs. Because he knows if the, the scribes and the Pharisees got their way, Jesus would be killed immediately. And he must make it to the cross. Because nothing matters if he does not go to the cross for the sins of his people. And they must be silenced for a time. His works and his teaching must be known. Our scriptures must be fully breathed out and revealed so that they can be written and passed on to us. Everything must happen in its appropriate time. And for now, they will speak. They will get their wish to kill him, but in his timing, not theirs. We will build on this more in Mark. And here's the last thing. The last detail here. Because they knew him. Well, yeah, the demons knew him. You, you mentioned that earlier. But here's something that is essential and I want you to get. Do not miss this. A lack of knowledge is not the problem. The demons are fully aware of who he is. Let me repeat that. A lack of knowledge about Jesus is not the problem. Most people I talk to, belief is not an issue. Oh, I believe in Jesus. God, sure. Whatever you believe, I believe. When I was in my sin, fully in my sin, living in the world, I never doubted. I knew there was a God. I knew there was a Jesus. I knew I was a sinner. But I liked my sin. Belief is easy. Repentance and belief is hard. Not just hard, but it is impossible. It is impossible in our own strength to say, yeah, I believe in that Jesus, and I want him to rule my life. I want him to, to, to reign and not me. That is what's really at the stake here. At stake here. The demons knew him, exactly who he was. The problem is not information. It is transformation. They do not, they have all the right facts, but they have not been transformed. And that is so key. Because there are so many people with all the right facts and are dead as they can be, no different than the demons. This is real. And we have to be careful with this. Our faith is not just head knowledge. Or we are no different than the demons. If our faith, if our knowledge does not lead to a regenerated heart, knowing who Jesus is, it's all useless. Because if we just say Jesus is God, yep, Good, you and the demons, are, you're in good company. 
This is where the gospel comes in. Because either your faith is in Him who has authority over all things, who died for your sins and has the authority to intercede on your behalf, and you will live. Or your faith is in yourself and your own authority and ability and power to save yourself, and you will die like the demons. This is powerful, and you can't avoid it. Demons have all their theology right. Wicked and rebellious to the end. So this is where we land. Our conclusion, just very simply. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of it. How do we respond to Jesus' authority? The conclusion will be up on the screen. How do you respond to Jesus' authority? Do you fight against it like the demons? Or you rejoice because he is all-powerful. And his power, his authority has saved you. Power to overcome every temptation. Power to raise from the grave. Power to reign on high and intercede in full authority. And if you are in him, you can rejoice because that authority is the greatest comfort you will ever know. But if you're not, be afraid and speak like the demons do. Are you here to destroy me? Let's pray.